Have you ever asked yourself this question? If I could tell someone about Jesus who never heard of him before, didn't know anything about him at all, what would I tell him? What would I tell that person? There are so many aspects of our Lord and Savior that we need to know. There's so much more to be said about Jesus. And more is being said about Jesus today more than ever, believe it or not. In his book, Philip Yancey wrote, The Jesus I Never Knew. He stated a statistic that was found by the University of Chicago. They did a study, and it showed that more has been written about Jesus Christ in the past 20 years than was written about him in the past, in the first 19 centuries. Can you imagine that? In the past 20 years, there's been more written about Jesus Christ than there has been in the first 19 centuries. I mean, he's talked about a lot. He's scrutinized a lot. He's probably the most scrutinized character of all in all of history in trying to summarize who he is. If he had to do that, would be a daunting task, would it not? But if it came down to one message, if it came down to one thing I could share with that person, it would be what I'm going to share with you tonight. And in the Gospel of John, we have to set up this scene because we're just pointing to one verse here in verse 29. But most of us know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and, and uh, they lived there for a while. But then what they do? Remember Mary and Joseph and Jesus? Where'd they go? They went to Egypt for a while. Remember that? And then... They returned to land, uh, live in the land of Israel, and they settled in a region of Galilee, specifically a little town called Nazareth. And we know almost nothing about the early life of our Lord and Savior. Almost nothing. Except one story. <laughs> Only one story is told. When Jesus was 12, you know the story, he and Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem with a large group of people. And on the journey way, on the journey back home, they suddenly realized they were with all these people, and the kids were probably frolicking about. They looked around, and Jesus was nowhere to be found. Can you imagine? You're the parents of Jesus, and you lost God. I mean, you'd be a little upset, I would imagine. So they hurried back into the city, and they found Jesus sitting in the temple among the teachers, listening and asking questions. He was 12, mind you. And when... His parents kind of said, hey, you know, we've been looking for you all over the place. What are you doing? It's interesting what he said in Luke 2, 49. He said, didn't you know I had to be in my what? father's house? I had to be in my father's house. From that point on, that's the only thing we know about the early life of Jesus. From that point on, basically, for the next 17 years until about the age of 30, we don't know anything. Absolutely nothing. And we come to our text today, and it brings us to that. And Jesus came to John the Baptist, who was an interesting character. He lived in <laughs> the wilderness and uh, wore funny clothes and ate different stuff. Locusts and honey, it tells us. But 
he came to John the Baptist to be baptized in the wilderness. And it tells us this in Matthew 3. And I'll just read it for you because I know you already turned to John. But Matthew 3, verses 13 to 15, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. He didn't want to baptize him. Saying, I need to be baptized by you. This is John the Baptist speaking. And you come to me to be baptized? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from the heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, some people ask, well, why did Jesus need to be baptized, especially by John? Because John the Baptist said that he preached a baptism of what? Repentance. Why did Jesus need to be baptized since he himself had no sins from which to repent? Why did he get baptized? And there's a lot of speculation on this. But even John the Baptist in that text questions Jesus. And he says, wait a minute, it's me that needs to be baptized by you. Remember who John the Baptist was. He was a religious leader. He was John the Baptist. He was one of the last prophets. He got direct revelation from God. But it's not difficult to understand John's concern here. His baptism was for the confession of sin and repentance. He says that in in Matthew 3, 2, 6, 11. And John the Baptist needed repentance. But Jesus had no sins to confess or to be forgiven of. And John's baptism was for those who would turn from their sin and therefore prepare for the arrival of the great king. Why then would the sinless king, Jesus, himself want to be baptized? And it tells us that John tried to prevent him. That word prevent there, it's in the imperfect tense and it suggests that John kept on trying to prevent him. Like, Jesus is coming to John saying, hey, I need to get baptized. And John's like, no, 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 I'm not doing this. I need to be baptized by you. And he kept on kind of preventing him. But the one thing that John didn't do, he didn't contradict the Lord. Who did that? Peter, remember? Hey, I'm going to go die. die. No, you're not. And what, what did Jesus have to do? Get thee behind me, Satan. He had to rebuke him. John was a little more, uh, maybe he had a little more wisdom than Peter. And he realized that, okay, I guess if this is what has to be done, then that's okay. But him being concerned about Jesus being baptized really speaks about Jesus' sinlessness. John the Baptist knew that this man had no sin. There was nothing to repent of. Why are you here asking me to be baptized? And John's attempt to prevent Jesus from being baptized is therefore a testimony of Jesus' perfection, his sinlessness, his spotlessness, as we spoke about on Sunday. And this prophet, John the Baptist, Jesus himself said of John the Baptist, 
None has arisen greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. And how John the Baptist is being asked to baptize the Son of God. He's, you know, I'm only a prophet of God. I'm sinful like everybody else. But you're the Son of God, Jesus. You're sinless. You're not a sinner. Why do you ask me to baptize you? And there's a lot of different speculation on this. But it was really, I think, John's testimony of his reluctance to baptism was his sinlessness, his perfection. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, what? Yet without sin, right? So his reluctance is understood. He's testifying to the sinlessness of the Son of God. But Jesus answers, Respectfully there in in Matthew 3.15, he says, Let it be so now, John. It's proper for us to do this. And he tells him why? To fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he's telling John the Baptist, you may not understand this, and it's okay. (laughs) Remember, I'm God, you're not. And this thing is right to do. This is right for us to do this. Maybe Jesus was baptized as an example of obedience. We're told in Scripture that anyone who professes Christ, who comes to Christ, who has their lives transformed by the blood of Christ, they should go through believer's baptism. It doesn't save you. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Believer's baptism is only an outward sign of an inward change in your life, and it's giving you the opportunity to testify to everybody that, wow, Jesus has made a difference in my life. And the Bible's very clear, it's not by sprinkling, it's by immersion. That's what the word baptism means. So maybe he was doing it as an example of obedience. Maybe he was baptized to identify with humankind. Others say maybe he was baptized to symbolize his death and his resurrection. That's what we do when we baptize somebody. We dunk them over the water, and we say buried in his death and raised to newness of life. And it's an example of Christ's death and resurrection. We can speculate about all that, but we know that he was baptized. (laughs) That's the important thing. And we know that his baptism fulfilled all righteousness in that moment. That's the context in which John says, when he sees Christ, what? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I've heard people quote that verse, and they say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It's not sins... It's sin. It's singular in the original. So the day after John baptized him, he sees Christ and he declares this. It's the only time that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God directly by somebody. And by the way, John is the only writer who uses this terminology to refer to Christ, mostly in the book of Revelation, as a lamb at all. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday. But why, what could you tell somebody if you only had limited time to talk to them about Christ, a Christ they've never heard? I think the message would be what John said, that he came to take away our sin. He came to bear our sin. Do you remember what happened when Mary first told Joseph that she was expecting a child. Remember, Joseph suspected that Mary was unfaithful. So what did he do? Being a respectful man, it says he, he tried to put her away quietly, but he was encountered by an angel of the Lord, 
And it tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, it says, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. This is what the angel told Joseph. And now here's the part I don't want you to miss. Because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Christ came to do. That's what his task here on earth was. From the very beginning, this was God's plan, that he would send his son to save us from our sins. Why do you think that is? It doesn't take a rocket science. Scientists look around. Have you noticed we got a little sin problem? <laughs> a little sin problem in our community, a little sin problem in our state, a little sin problem in our country, a little sin problem in the whole world. I mean, we're talking about the human race has a sin problem, beloved. Everyone in this room here tonight has a problem with sin. No one excluded. It's the human condition. If you've ever felt that you were at war with yourself, if you ever felt like you were being alienated from others, if you ever felt that you experience separation from God, I want you to know it's not the pizza you ate the night before. This isn't something you're imagining. This is reality. It's a true human condition. We're alienated, we're separated, we're broken, we're, we're fallen. And you, you don't have to take my word for it. If you're willing, turn on the news. If you're willing, pick up a newspaper. What do you read? You read sin. Everything is happening all around us. It's on a global scale. You see it locally. You see it in the lives of the people that are close to you. Something isn't right. We're not right. We're not as we could be. We're not as we should be. Instead, you could say, like uh, the, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 6, he says, we all, like sheep, have what? Gone astray. <laughs> Each one of us has turned to our own way. Paul reminds us in Romans three twenty three, what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the primary problem which everyone struggles with. And it's the reason why Jesus came to earth. This is why he came into this world, to save us from our sins, so that that which isn't right within us can be made right through him. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God. We're going to be celebrating communion here in a few moments. It symbolizes the death of Christ. Some people don't like to talk about sacrificial things. Don't talk, like, especially don't talk about sacrificing animals. They love their animals. I get it. But at the same time, this is a system that God has set up, a substitutionary sacrificial system. Some people don't want to hear about animal sacrifices. Some people don't want to hear about blood, the blood of Jesus. Oh, we can't, we've got to strike that from the hymnal. That's offensive to people. Exactly. It's supposed to be offensive. It should grieve your heart.
But God uses his symbolism in ancient days because it best illustrates, and even for us today, the death of Christ. It illustrates for us what he went through on our behalf. So let's see what we can learn from this symbolism before we take our communion time here tonight. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to take away the sin of the world. He came to put us at peace with ourselves and with another. He came to bridge the gap between you and God. The fact is, we're broken. He came to fix us. We battle with our brokenness, and more often than not, we lose the battle on a daily basis. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You can know what it means. You can know how it feels to be right with God, to have a proper relationship with your God, your creator, and be right with yourself and to be right with others. You can make peace with your past. And you can experience joy in your daily living in the moment. And you can have hope for your future. That's what Jesus Christ came to this earth to do. Because why? He is the Lamb of God. He's the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's look at that phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first century Jew would know exactly what this meant. They wouldn't have to think, what's he talking about a lamb? What what is this? They knew. And we know why they knew because the last couple messages we've been talking about the lamb, the Passover lamb, the substitutionary lamb. First of all, they would have thought of the Passover lamb. And we know what the Passover lamb was. It was a lamb that the family would take into their, their home for four days. A spotless lamb talked about this Sunday, and then on the fourth day, they would slaughter the lamb, and they would take the blood, and they would walk outside of their house, and they would paint the blood of the lamb over their door. Why? Because one of the plagues that God sent on Egypt, because they would not allow Israel to be free, they had them enslaved, and God said, let my people go, and Pharaoh kept on saying no. So God simply would up the ante. And they went through nine plagues. They had frogs. They had all this stuff going on. Finally, he said, that's it. Game over. This one applies to everybody. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, your firstborn child will die. The death angel will take its life. And so he told the Israelis, listen, here's your protection. You take this lamb. You take it into your home. You slaughter it. You paint the doorposts of your house, and when the death angel comes, it will see the blood, and it will pass over. That's what Passover is. It's passing over your sin. Your firstborn will live, while others will die. But you have to do what I told you to do, and we went over that last week. And so they knew exactly what would pop into their head would be the Passover lamb. But they also had another kind of lamb. They had a sacrificial lamb of the temple ritual, And every morning, can you imagine this? Every morning and every evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. I'm so glad. I just praise the Lord every time I read something like that, that I am not a pastor back then. I'm not a priest back then. Can you imagine getting up every day? Okay, got to go back down to the church, go down to the temple, and grab one of those lambs and take it in and slaughter it. And then you do the same thing at night. This went on year after year after year until 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. 
In Exodus 29, 38 and 39, it tells them this is what they were supposed to do. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight, it says. And that's the time that Christ died, by the way, was twilight. Now, the Old Testament ritual of sacrificing animals was never intended to be permanent. It was never intended to literally take away people's sins because the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and the blood of goats to take away sins. So even though they went through all these sacrifices, not one of those sacrifices removed one sin from them. It just provided a temporary covering until the ultimate sacrifice was going to be made. It pointed to Christ. The blood of an animal can never take away our sins. That's why we no longer sacrifice any kind of animals. Aren't you happy about that? I am. It was through the blood of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, through his sacrificial death, our sins can be forgiven when you place your faith, your trust in him. So the idea of this Lamb of God was they thought of the ritual and they thought of the Passover lamb. But then there's also the concept of restitution. And this is important to understand. The idea of sacrifice may be difficult, but we understand what restitution is, do we not? We live in a world that struggles a little bit with restitution now. I mean, but can you imagine living in a society where there is no restitution whatsoever? How chaotic it might become? You could take something from someone and never be required to give it back. There's no restitution. You could steal from your neighbors and never face any kind of consequence. There would be no debt to pay to society for your misdeeds because there's no restitution. You could abuse people. You could mistreat people. You could oppress them. You could enslave them, and nobody would hold you accountable. You could even kill someone if you wanted to kill someone because there's no such thing as consequences. There's no such thing as restitution. This is the day and age we live in, is it not? Where people can go out on the streets and destroy people's businesses they've, they've worked hard for and never spend a day in jail. Never have to pay back for all the damage they've done. There's no restitution. No society could ever function fully that way. It would eventually implode. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the implosion before our eyes. For some reason, though, many think that even though no society should ever allow its citizens to live in a culture without consequences... Most people would say, well, if you, if you steal something, there should be a consequence. If you kill someone, there should be a consequence. They may disagree on what the consequence is, but most sane people would say, yeah, that's, that's, there's something wrong with that. You shouldn't be able to just do that unhindered. But when it comes to God, what happens? They think God should. They think that God is being arbitrary and ruthless when he holds people accountable for their behavior. you've ever shared the Lord with anybody and you've spoken about the judgment of God, usually you hear something like this. Hey, wait a minute. If God is love, why can't he just let people do whatever they want to do? Why does he have to punish everybody for doing something wrong? 
And then usually if you just pause and let them talk a little longer, they'll say something like this. And by the way, why does he allow so much evil in the world? It's like, wait a minute. Do you understand what you just said? You condemn God for holding people accountable for their actions, and then you're wondering why God allows so much evil in the world. They're contradictory statements. The disconnection of the dots. I mean, here's the plain, unvarnished truth. We're all sinners. We're all, we've all offended a holy God. We've done things that we should not have done, and we've left undone certain things that maybe we should have done. I think everybody here knows that tonight. My intention with this message is not to try to convince you that you're a sinner. That's something that you have to recognize yourself. The problem is, is that some people can't see it in themselves. They just can't see it. I went back and watched a video this past week of our previous president when he was thinking, I think, of running for the election to the President of the United States. And he was being interviewed by a conservative group, and he was asked this question. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And he said, wow, that's a difficult question. Really? Why is it so difficult? That's a, that's a deep question. And here's what he ended up saying. Why do I have to repent and ask God for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? Wrong answer. Now, trust me. I love and pray for our, our previous president. <laughs> Support him wholeheartedly, to be honest. But he's a little confused when it comes to the salvation of his own soul. He went on, he talked about the education he had, the wonderful education. It's like, and the guy kept on saying, yeah, but have you ever asked God for forgiveness? He just wouldn't let it go. He said, well, I go to church. I'm a Presbyterian. He just started rambling all this stuff off. And I thought, boy, you're missing it, pal. You're missing it. But he had no clue. He had no clue. He's spiritually blind. As our current president is spiritually blind. We need to pray for these people. Every person in the world needs to encounter that moment of truth, the experience, and experience that wake-up call when they come to their senses and they realize, as G.K. Chesterton wrote in his letter to the Time magazine, he said, do you know what's wrong with the world? I am wrong with the world. And it's time for me to own up to the consequences. See, this is a problem every human being must confront that we are a sinful individual and we've done things wrong and we can never make them right. And there should be consequences for my misbehavior and restitution must be made. But guess what? I I can't do it. Not on that grand of scale. I've never met a person who's serious about their spiritual life who hasn't come to this simple conclusion. I need mercy. I need grace. I need a savior. That is what Jesus' death means to us. When he died on the cross, beloved, every sin you ever committed, past, present, and future, every ugly thing that you did, 
and every decent thing that you didn't do. Every hateful word you said and filthy thing you thought, every heart you broke, every spirit you crushed, every weak person you took advantage of, and every good person you attempted to sabotage, every time you turned your back on someone in need, and every time you exploited a situation to get your own advantage, every time you cut someone down to size, and every time you tried to puff yourself up, Every time you lied, every time you stole, every time you looked at a person of the opposite sex as if they're nothing more than a mere object, every time you shook your fist at God as if you know so much more about the world than he ever could possibly know. Every sin in your past, present, and future was placed upon Jesus Christ as he hung on that cruel Roman cross located in a dump on the outskirts of town. And while he hung on that cross, the restitution that you and I should have to pay to our heavenly Father, guess what? He paid it for us. He paid it for us. He was that spotless lamb of God, paying the price for a sinful world. That's why the prophet Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. And what? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Jesus Christ came into this world to die on the cross for your sins. And I'm sorry if you think your sins are insignificant, or maybe tonight you'd think that maybe your sins are non-existent. You're going to have a hard time understanding what the death of Christ means to you. But if you have ever had to despair for the person you've been and the things that you've done, if you've ever been convicted to your core, I want to tell you the best news that you will ever hear, that Jesus Christ paid it all. He paid it in full, the Bible says. That crimson stain, that sin that left upon your soul has been washed clean. That's why God said through the prophet Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Have you ever been in the snow, fresh fallen snow? It's so beautiful. It covers up all the mud. It covers up all the crud. It's just so beautiful. Though they be like red like crimson, it says, they shall be as wool. See, we may not understand certain aspects of all the ancient rituals, the ancient sacrifices they had to go through. But one thing every honest person here will admit, I know what it's like to come to the end of myself. I know what it's like to be burdened by my sin. I know what it's like to owe a debt that I cannot pay. And I want to know that today... I want you to know that your debt has been paid in full. All you have to do is receive it. Simply receive it. Just like in our culture in which consequences must be faced, beloved, restitution must be made. It's the same in the spiritual world. It's no different. There are spiritual consequences to be faced and spiritual restitution that has to be made. But unlike our society which is often erratic and unjust. The God of the universe is holy. He's good. He's merciful. He's kind. He's just. 
He's loving. Even, even when we don't deserve it. He wants so much for you to be at peace with him. He wants so much for you to be at peace with yourself and, and peace with your past and peace with others. He wants that so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to do something that's unimaginable. To make restitution for all the wrong that you have ever done and will ever do. The same apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.2, He is the atoning sacrifice, speaking of Christ, for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We used to sing a, a... a chorus in our youth group when I was a youth pastor. He paid a debt he did not owe because I owed a debt that I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. See, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's something that God wants you to be able to say personally. I pray that this evening you can say in your own heart, as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, precious Lamb of God, take away my sin. Take away my sin.